is Betty Rhodes, and you are listening to The Home Team with Jared Allen's Homes for Wounded Warriors. We are really, really excited today because we are talking to the one and only Kirsty Ennis. Uh, Kirsty, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on with us. Oh, yeah, no way. Thank you guys for having me. So I know I've been following you um, for, for quite some time, um, having just sort of lived and worked in the veteran and military space uh, for the past 14 years or so. Um, but just to kind of get us into who you are, um, tell me a little bit about, um, you joined the Marine Corps in 2008. Um, so tell me a little bit about kind of your path to get to that point. Um, did you come from a military family or kind of what was your background that led you there? Yeah, well, so uh, one of my favorite stories to tell is about my parents. Uh, so my mom and my dad got married at 18 years old. Dad joined the Marine Corps right off the bat. Um, and, you know, nine years later, I'm already born. My parents are living on Marine Corps Base 29 Palms over in California. Mm-hmm. And my mom comes home and tells my dad, you know, I think these female Marines are pretty badass. And my dad looks at my mom and says, I will never be married to a female Marine. Oh. And my mom looks back at my dad, uh, turns around, leaves, gets an age waiver and joins the Marine Corps, <laughs> um, leaving me at home with my dad while she goes to boot camp. <laughs> um, so one of my earliest memories is actually of my mom, you know, walking across the parade deck at Paris Island, South Carolina, as she graduated, you know, as a female Marine. Um, and so from a very early age, I idolized these two people that got up every day and put the uniform on and did something bigger than themselves. Um, and I knew, I knew that I wanted to do that. You know, I, I was so proud of my parents. You know, I wore this t-shirt that said my mom's U.S. Marine, my Barbie dolls wore dress blues instead of princess gowns and the whole nine. And I wanted to give, you know, my parents a reason to be proud of me like I was of them. Wow. Now, <laughs> well, that said, um, like I said, I loved the Marine Corps, but I was also a very terrible child, very mischievous, um, always up to something, uh, too smart for my own good. So I got into a ton of trouble, nothing, you know, obviously never malicious, but just very curious my entire life. Um, so I graduated high school. I was done with that by the time I was 15 and did two years of community college and was still kind of getting into some trouble. So, you know, I I remember looking around my chemistry lab, sitting at Pensacola junior college and just kind of being like, you know what, it's, it's time. It's time to go. Um, so I got up, walked out of my class, went to the recruiter's office and said, hey, you know, what? It's, it's, you know, it's time. Um, and, you know, everybody like the recruiter asked, like, you know, why do you want to join? And I looked at him and said, I want to I want a Rubbermaid box. <laughs> and at first he was like, what the heck is she talking about? Um, but, you know, growing up my whole life, I went through my parents' boxes of uniforms and awards and medals. Um, and, you know, broken propellers from my dad being over in Saudi Arabia and all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, and I wanted that, you know, I wanted something to look back on and be proud of. So uh, four months after my 17th birthday, um, I joined the Marine Corps. What did your parents have to say about that? Had you talked to them about that? Possibility <laughs> <before>? <laughs> uh, yeah. So my parents knew my like my honestly, my entire life, like I used to get off the school bus and come home and watch this very poorly made um, documentary on in the Marine Corps boot camp, you know, VHS. And I put it, I, I kid you not, I watched it like once a day. Um, so they knew that I wanted that. Um, when I came home and told them that, it, you know, it was time, so to speak, my mom was basically like good riddance. She was over it. She was like, call on the troops. I'm done with you. <laughs> um, 
and sign damn near immediately. And then my dad on the flip side, he was like, please just do the last two years of college, join as an officer. Um, you know, he was just like, I, I, he didn't want to see me do it then. And I just looked him square in the eye and said, look, he can find this paperwork now or in eight months, I'm going to do it anyways. And I don't need you to sign it. Um, and, you know, we went back and forth for a little while. And then he told me that if I did a desk job, like my mom, my mom was supplying the Marine Corps, um, that he would send the papers. And I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, dude. <laughs> um, and then he actually ended up signing the papers. So I got my way in the end. Um, but <laughs> I definitely didn't do a desk job. I was going to say, way. you did not do a desk job. That is for sure. So how how was your path from from when you when you went to boot camp, when you first started up with the Marine Corps to really finding your career and your, your place, uh, in the service. How did that happen? Yeah. Um, well, so when I went to the recruiter, like I thought out was just like, I need to be challenged. Um, uh, my entire life, not to sound arrogant or anything like that, but I, I, I didn't have to work at anything. You know, athletics were easy. Team sports were kind of a joke. Academics. I didn't have to try. I don't even know how to study to this day. Um, and so I wanted something that was super foreign that I had to like struggle with to understand, and so when, you know, I went and did the ASVAB and all that good stuff and got my scores back and I could do any job in the Marine Corps, obviously minus infantry. And, you know, he set everything in front of me and I was like, you know what, what is this aviation thing about? And he was like, well, that's great and all, but you have to pick something specific within it. Um, and so I kind of sifted through everything and I was like, you know, what? I have, I know nothing about being a mechanic. And so I just looked at him and said, hey, put me in for this and let me know as soon as I can go. And um, I ended up going to boot camp in August of 2008. And again, I made boot camp harder than it had to be. You know, <laughs> physically, I could run, I could run laps around the drill instructors, and uh, I mean, they really couldn't shake me mentally. But you know, I just stupid stuff, being stubborn. You know, they'd tell me to scream and I'd whisper. You know, being a 17-year-old with a bad attitude. Um, but all of that stuff, like I had the perspective of like, who else gets paid to play around on an on an adult, you know, obstacle course. So I loved it. Um, And then combat training, of course, like who else gets paid to throw grenades and shoot, you know, machine guns, like everything was, in my opinion, just this was a great wild adventure. Um, Of course, you know, you hit the fleet and everything changes because now you have to put your big girl pants on um, and play the play the boys game. But I I had a hard time initially, like being the first female in my shop, the only female in my shop and trying to find my place and, and navigate you know, who I wanted to be in their eyes. Like, of course I wanted to be one of the guys, mm-hmm. but I also didn't want to settle for just being a maintainer. You know, I wanted, I wanted to be a door gunner and, you know, they all kind of laughed in my face. And eventually after I earned their trust and respect, they started to teach me, you know, my job a little more thoroughly and, you know, were more like apt to like set me up for success. And don't get me wrong, like, like every other junior Marine, we all make our mistakes and, and uh, do the things that we need to learn from. But, um, you know, eventually I worked my way through the ranks, did my first deployment, picked up my um, my aircrew wings, and then eventually my combat aircrew wings. And, and then unfortunately, um, I mean, the elephant in the room is I got hurt in Afghanistan when my helicopter went down um, in the southern Helmand province of Afghanistan, right outside of the forward operating base in Azad. And I mean, I mean, that's where I'm at now. Um, but as far as like reflecting on my life in the military, it's is that chapter closed now? Absolutely. But it was definitely some of the stepping stones to create, you know, the best version of myself, you know, the person that I am now. Absolutely. Um, and it seems like, you know, you, you obviously had 
knowledge of what it was like because both of your parents served uh, in, in the Marine Corps. But was it about, you know, was it about what you expected or was it very different from your expectations? Um, no, I mean, honestly, it was about what I expected. Um, I guess maybe the only thing that would be any, any different, um, was just like, you know, first stepping into that shop and everybody kind of looking at me a little bit differently. Like, who is she? Why is she here? Do we want her here kind of thing? Cause in my mind, I had gone through everything that they had gone through. Um, but once I worked through those kinks with my shop, like it was everything that I, that I wanted. I mean, and even to this day, like I never wanted to get out of the Marine Corps. I, I got hurt. <laughs> like yeah. I was forced to take medical retirement, but I mean, outside of that, again, like the bad things that happen, like if I got in trouble, odds are I freaking did something to get in trouble, you know, or like I did all of the, uh, what do you want to say? Like, we'll say the traditional um, routines. Of, I, I did everything that the, di- the, that the guys did. Um, and I never really had an issue with any of it. I, you know, I loved it. And to this day, I look back and some of my greatest heroes and role models are the people that I served with. So. Yeah. Yeah. So you were injured in 2012 um, when you were in Afghanistan. What, I guess, you know, there's obviously a million things uh, going through your mind uh, when something like that happens and when there's, you know, intense trauma. What is, what did, I guess, what did you, what were your first real sort of thoughts about, you know, what was going to happen and what you were going to do once you sort of understood your injury? I honestly think it took me a long time to understand my injury. Um, So when I was laying in the back of my Dash 1 aircraft or my lead aircraft and my helicopter went down, um, you know, they threw me in the back alongside another casualty and I just kind of laid there and I had no idea. I don't know if it was shock or what, you know, obviously they couldn't give me any morphine because of the head trauma and everything. Mm-hmm. But like I just laid in the back of this other aircraft and like stared at this cabin blue, you know, overhead light and told myself I wasn't going to die without seeing my little sister. And I knew I was messed up. Like I could feel, I could feel pain, but I, I didn't, I don't think I really processed it. Mm-hmm. But as soon as they got me back to Camp Bastion, um, and they wheeled me into like the makeshift hospital there. Uh, they wheeled me in, of course, bright white lights and the whole nine. And my gunnery sergeant and my sergeant major were both standing there and they just stared at me and they cried. And in that moment, I knew I was, I knew I was messed up. And that's, I think that was the first time that I realized that I was going home. Cause in my mind this whole time, I'm like, okay, cool, whatever, helicopter crash. I just got combat meritoriously promoted to sergeant. They can't send me home. They need me. I'm a collateral duty inspector. They need me out here to maintain. They need me out here to, you know, to be a door gunner. They need me. Um, but I didn't really like process the fact that I would be going home. Um, and, you know, of course they gave me a, a good dose of the good stuff and they knocked me out. And then when I woke up again, you know, there's a little backpack packed in front of me. And before I knew it, they were sedating me and strapping me to a gurney and putting me on a, you know, a C5 and C130 back home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I honestly think that was the hardest part of, of all of it, not necessarily the recovery, you know, physically, mentally, or emotionally, but it was the fact that I was leaving my guys back there. Yeah. Um, and even, yeah. you know, I, they actually even pinned me, you know, they did all my, my air metal ceremonies and all this stuff when I was already in the hospital and, uh, the commanding general of second mall came out and they put a handful of my guys from my unit, um, on like a video, you know, a teleconference thing. And 
when I saw my guys back in Afghanistan and the fact that I was stateside, regardless of if, you know, I'm stuck in a wheelchair or in a C-spine collar or whatever, like, I just saw my guys and I knew that they were still in Afghanistan and I was back stateside. Um, and that was hands down one of the hardest things I've ever dealt with. Yeah. Did you, did your injury and treatment thereof and recovery take you through Walter Reed? Yeah, very briefly. Yeah. Um, uh, most of the folks that that we've built for, um, many of whom are are amputees, you know, they've they've spent their various amounts of time at Walter Reed, and they've all had sort of, you know, differing experiences with that recovery process in that environment. Um, even though you were there only for a short time, what was, I guess, what was your experience there like? <laughs> um, I don't remember anything of Walter Reed, with the exception of being. Stacked on top of, so the C, C5 that I was going into Walter Reed, there's a bunch of with their limbs blown off, a bunch of people scarred up and banged up, stacked literally on stretchers. Uh, there was two people below me, I was on the top one. And then there's a bunch of people on like the walls of the aircraft just sitting there and they all just stared at me because I was the only female. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my lungs kept sticking together. So I was throwing up on myself. Um, mm-hmm. and then they carried me off of the aircraft once we made it to DC. And, uh, that was about it. Yeah. <laughs> it was the first time that they actually sewed me up. I was there for a few days and they dictated because of my, the state of my polytrauma, you know, everything from the spinal cord damage to my arms, my ears, my eyes, the pretty severe um, damage to my right frontal lobe of my brain. And then of course the leg that it was better to send me to Naval Medical Center San Diego. So I was only at Walter Reed for just a few, literally a few short days. Okay. Um, and they said that I was suited for the West Coast. Got it. Now, you know, everybody has differing reactions to you know, that kind of trauma, obviously. But, you know, you you are the kind of person where, you know, you've already said, like, you were really looking for challenges. You know, you wanted something that was going to push you was it pretty easy for you to to basically wrap your head around the fact that hey, this is just going to be something to challenge me and I'm just going to take that on and going forward? Uh, yes and no. I mean, so when I was here, I was very young. As a young woman, like, of course, you're worried about what do I look like? Am I going to look the same in a dress? Who's going to find me attractive? Can I have a family? That sort of thing. So it wasn't easy for me to wrap my head around that. You know, I was pretty broken down um as far as the self-esteem side of things goes um the other stuff um once I was finally healthy with like my amputation and I was finally able to um effectively communicate with other people and tell them what I needed or wanted um that sort of thing um I didn't I took you know from that moment on I took it as a challenge yeah initially like right off the bat um no it was more so you know, how am I going to deal with, with what I look like now, which sounds very superficial and very shallow, but that's what it came down to. No, it's, I mean, it's critically important. I think, you know, like you said, from a self-esteem standpoint and, you know, mental health as well, you know, those are, those are important issues to, to work through. Did you sort of have in your mind, I guess, you know, once you, once you got a handle on some of your injuries and, and you were feeling more like yourself and more comfortable did you kind of have an eye towards what you were going to tackle next um you know you you obviously um 
got a lot of education and started competitive sports. And, you know, did you know that those were going to be things that you were going to be uh, working on? Or, you know, how did, how did, how did your path sort of start from being, you know, when you're not in the military anymore and you're moving on to this next part of your life? Yeah, well, so I guess the world of extreme sports really kind of, I mean, obviously happened after I got hurt. So my entire life, especially being from the South, there was a huge emphasis on team sports. Um, So of course I played softball and volleyball and all of that. But while I was in the hospital, I mean, I was grabbing at straws. Um, you know, people look at me now and they see me, you know, climbing Everest or, you know, wearing these big insane mountains and, you know, getting gold medals and all these crazy things. But the reality is none of that, that came easily. Um, and honestly, it all kind of happened by chance. And there was an organization called Disabled Sports USA that walked into my hospital room and said, hey, how do you feel about learning a winter sport? And at that point, I just kind of like did the slow blink at him and said, well, sure whatever you got, just get me out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't because I had a passion for snow sports, obviously being from Florida. Um, I just wanted out of the hospital. Uh, and conveniently, I picked it up really quickly. Ended up competing alongside Team USA. Um, and I mean, it really gave me the confidence that I could go out and do anything. Um, and then from there, you know, the mountain, of course, introduced me to everything. Ice climbing and rock climbing and mountaineering, fly fishing, you know, all the things that I do now and do very actively and passionately. And I mean, that saved my life, um, you know, that got me into to figuring out who Kirstie is and who I wanted to be and, and where I wanted to go with the rest of my life. Um, and, and even more so, like, I think one of the hardest parts of my recovery wasn't necessarily the physical aspect, but losing my sense of purpose, you know, joining the, joining the Marine Corps at 17 years old, um, you know, all you know is, is the Marine Corps. And then when you're in it for six years, then you get told that the one thing that you love and that you want to do for the rest of your life is being taken away from you. Um, you know, it's a struggle. You have to figure out how, how do you compensate for that? What's going to give you that same joy? So I really had to figure out how I was going to move forward with my life and, and serve people in a different way. Yeah. Um, and, and sports gave me that. You know, that's why I'm doing what I do now with climbing the seven summits and doing seven marathons, seven continents, seven days, everything through my foundation. You know, hosting, you know, athletic clinics and exposure clinics for people in underserved populations. Like, I just want to see people take advantage of, you know, the, the outdoors and use it as medicine like I did. Um, so really, it was just stepping stone. Sports was, was the first step in my recovery, but it's also been the tool that's given me, like, purpose for the rest of my life, too. Yeah. And you've, you've helped so many other people as well through sports and it's such, um, it's such an important outlet for so many people. Do you have, um, a favorite sport? I mean, obviously you, you have done a lot of different kinds of, uh, sports and you're successful at so many things, but do you have a favorite sport to participate in? Uh, right now, I mean, it's, it's a broad spectrum. Snowboarding will probably always be my first love, but that's just because it introduced me to everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, mountaineering, I am still just extremely passionate about, uh, you know, it's, it's that one reminder of putting one foot in front of the other, and independence and everything that I fought for to stay out of the wheelchair. Um, it's so symbolic of everything else that I'm trying to do with my life. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. Mountaineering would definitely be, I guess, at the forefront of all of it. Yeah. So you recently, um, I mean, you've you've climbed so many uh, so many 
mountains, summits. There's there's so many things that we could talk about about your climbing. Um, I mean, I think that most people are the most familiar with Kilimanjaro um, as an endeavor. So talk to me a little bit about what that was like and you know what that particular climb taught you and did for you. Um, well, Kilimanjaro actually kind of happened. So I was originally, I had my heart set on through the mountain called Karstanzana, Indonesia. And that fell through the wayside, like climbing permits and all, and all of that. And I don't know, I kind of thought my career or my passion for the outdoors was taken away from me. Um, and then I was just conveniently approached by a good friend of mine um, who was a former Green Beret and then also was um, a former NFL player. And he was like, hey, how about you, you know, help us out and climb Kilimanjaro with us? And we're, you know, we're trying to raise money for clean water for the East Tanzanians. And uh, you know, I, I mean, that like fit everything for me. Um, obviously, it fulfilled my like adventurous spirit, if you will, but then it also had gave back to like the humanitarian side of things. And there was purpose and passion behind these climbs. And I didn't know where it was going to lead. I thought it was going to be a one and done kind of deal. I just needed, I had this hunger for something and I just wanted to satiate it and be done. And then I realized that there was so much more to it that I could actually create something powerful from it. And then, I mean, you know, I always say 2017 was the best years of my life or the beginning of the best years of my life, rather, um, because Kilimanjaro was just a start. Right. And, you know, fast forward then to this year and you you tackled Mount Everest, um, something that, you know, it's gotten a lot of attention recently, but, you know, certainly has been a, you know, a longstanding, you know, ultimate test for people. Um, was it sort of that ultimate test for you so far in your life? Yeah, I mean, well, don't get me wrong. So I never honestly like wanted to climb Everest. Um, it is a part of my Seven Summits Challenge and it's the highest peak range of the Seven Summits. Um, my dream has always been a mountain called K2, which is a much more dangerous, far gnarlier um, mountain than what Everest is. But the real realization of like a death rate of 29% on K2 um, for people that have all of their limbs means that I will probably never climb that mountain until I'm like on my deathbed myself. Um, and so Everest was kind of like settling for me, but it was also this pinnacle of like, it was a culmination of, you know, all of these other mountains that I've been training on, you know, it, I, I had to combine all of those skill sets and all of those tolerances, all of those, I mean, I guess like the endurance aspects of all of it, to, I had to use all of those to be successful on Everest. So it really was like, a culmination of all my ever of all of my efforts um, to be able to do Everest, but I mean, there's a lot more to it than the climb. Um, you know that climb, sure. I mean, making it to the South Summit and being 28,000, you know, whatever, however many feet I was at that point, didn't really mean that much to me. You know, the people that I met along the way, the suffering, the pain, the misery, all the way up to the top, that that made it worth it. Um, the emotion that was there. That, that made it all worth it to me and the money that was raised and the people that we helped. Um, so maybe I don't have like this deep, crazy connection to Everest. Like I guess most people think I do, but, <laughs> but um, well, you, it you means a lot more to me than just the climb. Yeah. You documented um, your experience on Everest on your blog, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So people can go to um, 
can go to kirstiennisfoundation.com slash blog for that. But let's talk more about the Kirstie Ennis Foundation. Um, you have raised money and awareness for a wide variety of, of nonprofit organizations. Um, and how does, how does the Kirstie Ennis Foundation play into that part of, of your purpose? Well, I mean, it all comes back to serving people. Um, I had to figure out how, like, obviously I can't run around with a 50 caliber machine gun anymore and kicking down doors and protecting people that can't protect themselves. It's just not feasible, not attainable anymore on one leg. But what I can do is, is hopefully inspire people and enable them, you know, to live a full, like, healthy, happy life. And, you know, really the Christian uh, Foundation came to fruition out of, really out of necessity. Um, for a while I had just been, you know, doing these big crazy climbs and doing things like crowd risers and stuff like that. But I needed a way to le- to legitimize what I'm doing. Um, so we created a 501c3. It still remains 100% volunteer based. You know, and we have very very little overhead with all of our spaces being donated and whatnot. And you know, we do some pretty phenomenal things with our programming, like financially support deserve other deserving nonprofits all around the globe. Um, and then of course we you know provide educational opportunity and healing in the outdoors, whether it's through individual scholarships or, you know, those exposure clinics that I was kind of talking about earlier. Um, you know, we just want to see more people outside um, taking advantage of, you know, what's right in front of us, really. So, yeah. um, it's been, it's been, it's been pretty powerful. I mean, it's been life changing. It's something that, I don't know, that I never really dreamed that I would be doing or even thought that I would be doing. Uh, but it's been, it's been pretty dang special and it's opened my eyes and my heart um, to a whole different world that I never even knew was there. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you were clearly, you know, doing this work and putting in this time and energy before you officially, you know, incorporated your foundation. But when, when did the foundation officially come into existence? Oh my God. So we've only, we've been 501c3 since June of 2018. Okay. Yeah. I knew it was within the past year or so. Um, yeah. uh, and, and as a fellow 501c3 uh, employee, I definitely can <laughs> respect and understand the incredible, you know, hard work that goes into, um, you know, just even putting together, you know, nonprofit programming and and fundraising and all the things that go into it. It's it's a lot more in depth, I think, than people realize. Um, but you're but you're still. Um, do you have you know, you, you have a, the organization seems to have a focus in terms of the individuals and other organizations that it supports in terms of, you know, education and, you know, healing through sports. Um, is that, is that an accurate sort of reflection of, um, the types of assistance that you want the foundation to continue to provide? Yeah, no, definitely. So the biggest thing for me is like this inclusion. Um, you know, do I think that there should be wheelchair ramps built, you know, to the, to the top of Everest? Absolutely not. But do I think that, you know, everybody, regardless of where you live, where you're from, what your adversities are, what your, you know, current situation is, should be included in the outdoors so that we can all reap the benefits of it? Absolutely. So whether that's me going over to Nepal and creating the first wheelchair program with the Center for Disabled um, Children's Association, or if that's, you know, when I go down to Ecuador in September and, you know, provide recycled prosthetics for underserved populations and, you know, and orphaned amputees down there, you know, there's like, there's this broad spectrum of, broad spectrum of, of people that we're trying to exposed to the outdoors you know we have veterans clinics we have women's clinics we have kids clinics disabled clinics we just want to see more people outside and and realistically not staring at screens um 
there's a lot of the world has to offer. Um, and, you know, the nonprofits, as far as like who we support through that, we have a grant application process. And of course, my board votes on it. And of course, there's all sorts of documents that have to be provided for it to even be considered. But like our main emphasis is finding that alternative medicine and what's going to provide people, you know, the best quality of life, you no, know, regardless of what that is. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I read somewhere um, about you, you know, that you, and, and that I completely believe this, uh, that you do more on one leg than most people do on two in their lifetime. And I feel like that's something that comes up a lot in the work that we do as well, where um, these uh, veterans, you know, sure, they've had injuries and they've had challenges, but, you know, they still want to you know, get out and do the things that bring them joy and interact with people, interact with the world. And I think, um, you know, seeing these programs that allow them to do that is really, it, it's, it's wonderful that those opportunities have, you know, continued to increase and grow over time um, with, with organizations like yours. Where, where do you think you want the foundation to be in the future? You know, five, 10 years down the line, do you have, um, specific thoughts on kind of how you see things moving forward? Yeah, well, so over the next five years, we have some pretty cool things in place. Um, and I, I have no idea how you guys fundraise or how you, you know, um, you get your programming dollars or anything like that. But, you know, everybody does the the golf tournaments and the luncheons and the galas. But so what we've been doing as of late is we're hosting um, like snowboarding competitions and we're actually like creating our own divisions to be able to include the adaptive community or we're actually piggybacking on to a lot of other much bigger um uh, not programs but much bigger events like the dav does their winter sports clinic here at snowmass you know every year huge event um and i love it i think what they're doing is great but you know they bring all these veterans out for a week and then they send them home um, and unfortunately, it's like giving a kid a piece of candy and saying, hey, look at how great this is. And, they, and then they take it away. But with um, the Christina Foundation and us partnering, partnering with organizations like that, we're actually going to be providing the tools for these people to continue doing that recreational therapy. So outfitting them with the tools that they need, the equipment that they need, you know, the ski passes, the lift passes and creating essentially what would be like the Christina Foundation scholarships so that people can continue their recreational therapy in the outdoors and hopefully staying away from the four walls of a hospital. And then on the flip side of that, um, we would really love to continue um, furthering our program with education. Um, so we would love to open up our doors to saying, hey, you know, so-and-so wants their credentials to be a wilderness EMT. So we would love to be able to provide funding for them to go forth and do that. And in the meantime, you know, provide assistance to take care of their families and, and the likes of that nature. Uh, and then from there, again, just supporting nonprofits that deserve it. You know, with over, what is it, 2 million nonprofits in North America alone, there's a lot of nonprofits out there that say they're doing these amazing things, and guess what? They're not. <laughs> uh, so I'm pretty proud that we weed through those people and we give assistance to those that are actually deserving and to those that are actually making a difference um, in the lives of people and, and, the, and in the lives of families. Yeah. Is it harder to choose the nonprofits that you support uh, than you thought it would be? Or did you, did you anticipate, you know, having so many choices and applicants? Oh my God. No, it is so hard for me. Uh, and luckily though, I don't pick, <laughs> you know, if I had it my way, I'd help every single, you know, 
piece of like every single nonprofit that came across my desk. But the reality is that's why I have a board. You know, my board keeps me in line and makes me realize that I'm not Oprah. <laughs> I can't help everyone right now when I want to. Um, but yeah, I mean, and I think that's the beauty of, of me doing the foundation the way that I've done it. You know, yes, I'm a veteran, but guess what? I don't want to help just veterans. You know, I want to help their families and I want to help women and kids and disabled. I want to help the minorities. You know, I want to help, you know, again, just people. I, I think one of the things that I figured out through this entire insane journey that I've been on is I have a huge passion for people. Um, and I'll always put people in general ahead of myself, um, almost to a fault at times, but, um, you know, it makes me happy. You know, it fills my heart to be able to, to look at people and see them thriving. Yeah, and I think also, you know, it helps to remember, you know, there's, you know, there's obviously the civilian military divide, you know, that comes up periodically, but bottom line is that, you know, members of the military veterans, you know, they're people and, you know, we all have these life challenges and we all encounter, you know, a variety of things in our lives and, you know, the, you know, serving in the military gives you a different perspective on some things, but at the end of the day, you know, we're all just trying to, um, you know, do the best that we can at what we're doing for our families, for ourselves. And, uh, we have a lot of the same struggles. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of commonality there that maybe people, people overlook. Um, so what, what are you, what, what do you need right now? So the foundation, you know, obviously uh, I can, I can relate as a, a nonprofit fundraiser, you know, it is a hustle. It is, um, a lot of work <laughs> to get that yeah. financial support and to grow it so that you can help more people. So are you, you know, still just sort of generally looking for supporters? Or are you looking for specific types of support? Uh, I mean, you know, we, quite frankly, we take as a nonprofit, we take any and all support. And, <laughs> you know, I, I want to build, I want to build just a really bad team of people that build each other up mm -hmm. when it's all said and done. Um, so don't get me wrong. You know, we, we need money. We need money to be able to do what we do. I don't take a dime from the foundation. None of my bills are paid by the foundation. None of my climbs are paid for by my foundation. Um, but in the world of what we do as an organization, I mean, we're always looking for just creative genius, you know, whether it's for fundraising or marketing or events. Um, but then of course, like, you know, we're always looking for donors and sponsors. Uh, you know, we can't do what we want to do without donation dollars. So, I mean, you know, our doors definitely aren't closed to anyone. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, you're right. You kind of have to be, have to be open with that stuff. And, you know, it's also about, you know, especially when you're dealing with, a, you know, smaller organizations, you know, you can run lean and still really provide, you know, individualized, really key support to people. And, you know, that seems like the kind of organization that you, that you have put together is one where you can really, you don't have to look too far to see the impact and you can really touch it. And it's very close to, to you and to all the people who are involved in your organization, which is great. Um, if people want to learn more or follow you, let's, let's talk about where they can find you. Yeah. So, I mean, as you mentioned earlier, all of my blogs and all of my reflections on what I do, you can find that all on um, christinafoundation.com or .org. Um, there's a ton of information. There's highlights of what I've done and who we're helping the expeditions and all of that. And then of course, social media, <laughs> Uh, Facebook is the, the Christianist Foundation or myself, just Christianist, and the same for Instagram, Christianist Foundation and Christianist. 
That's great. Um, you have anything uh, coming up that people should know about that you're working on? What's what's in the next couple months for you? <laughs> oh man, um, I, I guess I can like kind of shoot out the uh, the highlight reel if you will. Um, on September 20th, I am going down to Ecuador. I uh, kind of touched base on that briefly. Going down there, we're going to be climbing Cotopaxi. My foundation has actually sponsored two other adaptive amputee climbers, um, Keontae Story from California, and then another young lady who was in a traumatic accident in 2011 um, from Mexico City, actually. We're going to be headed down to climb Cotopaxi, um, fingers crossed, um, for good weather and a summit. But then more importantly, we're going to, going to be um, recycling those prosthetics and bringing them to people that need them. And then one of the things I'm super excited for in December is we're actually going to be taking um, 16 World War II vets um, back to the Battle of the Bulge um, okay. for some of their own um, full circle healing, if you will, alongside one of my dear friends, Andy Biggio of um, the Wounded Vet Run. So those are, I guess, through the end of the year, the biggest thing. But of course, there's there's a couple of things scattered here and there throughout. So. Well, yeah, Kirstie uh, is a great follow uh, listener. So there's always something uh, <laughs> interesting and exciting going on. Um, that's really interesting. My grandfather um, on my dad's side uh, served in the Battle of the Bulge. So I'll have to, to keep up and, and, and follow that because that I'm sure that'll be just incredibly, incredibly powerful. Oh, yeah, no, I am. I, um... Near and dear to my heart, my great aunt Lydia, uh, I don't know if you've seen on my social media or anything like that, but she was one of the first female active duty Marines during World War II. So I have a long line of, uh, of female Marines in my in my family, but um, she's really a source of inspiration for all of us to see what she's been through. She's still alive and kicking at 97 now. So wow. uh, huge source of, of motivation and inspiration for me. So what a, just what trying a, to give back to, to them. Yeah, what a lineage. I mean, it's no wonder that uh, that you cannot be stopped. Um, <laughs> good things in your bones there. Um, that's exciting. Um, well, is there anything else that you would like our listeners to to know about what's going on with you and how they can help? No, I mean, I just appreciate you guys having me on. Um, you know, the, the more we get to talking and the more you know, like I said, I mean, you you ask questions that uh, people haven't asked me before, so it gets me thinking and gets my wheels turning. And the more that we're communicating about this, you know, it gives people more of a reason to relate to me and what I'm doing. Um, so thanks for having me on. And again, follow along with what I'm doing on the thecursianusfoundation.com.org or again on my social media. I mean, that would be amazing. And, and thanks, more importantly, thanks for what you guys do. What you're doing oh, is... Yeah. obviously near and dear to my heart too. <laughs> yeah, we, we love what we do. And you know, it, the nonprofit world, we've mentioned it. It's not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. Uh, you get, you get told no a lot and uh, it's really hard. <laughs> you don't, you don't get into it, you know, for, for money or glory, you get into it because you want to do the right thing and you want to help people. And there are a lot of really great people out there helping folks. And uh, we're just glad that we got to, we got to talk to one of them today, but before we let you go, so we have a tradition here at the home team, we have a random question generator just to kind of get some goofy information uh, for our listeners to get to know you a little better. I literally have a button that I push and it pops up a question. Um, so are you, are you ready for the, ready for the gauntlet here? <laughs> I'm a little afraid, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So question number one, this is a great one. What did you do on your most recent birthday? Oh God. Oh, my most recent birthday. I was actually in Argentina climbing the highest point in South America, also known as the mountain of death. 
So just another day, you know, right? Yeah, <laughs> typical. That is that is quite a birthday. Um, what what <laughs> month is is your birthday? And I won't ask for the actual date, but what what month are you in? January. Okay. All right. Excellent. Okay. All right. Question two: Do you prefer a quiet night at home or going out to a big party? Oh man, no way. Home. <laughs> I get to spend very little time at home. So now, like when I am in Colorado, if I'm not working, I am at home in sweatpants. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Kind I of think. trying to watch Netflix, but usually falling asleep on my couch. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. You, you do probably don't spend too many uh, consecutive days at home. So that's, that's completely fair. All right. So the, the last question Interesting. If you could choose to have any useless superpower, what would you pick? Although I might have to, I might have to modify this question because if it's a superpower, it couldn't possibly be useless. So let's just say if you could have any superpower, what would you pick? Oh God, two things came to mind. One's probably not very appropriate, um, <laughs> but um, what, the first one would be a convenient way to go to the bathroom on the side of a mountain, <laughs> and then. <laughs> Sorry, I told you in progress. But um, <laughs> and the second one would be a go-go gadget leg. Ah, yes. All right. Well, only if you get the cool theme song to go with it. <laughs> yes, exactly. All right. We'll see. That wasn't so bad. Um, it gives us uh, gives us a little a little extra glimpse into you, and you um, you just continue to be an inspiration to us and to lots of other people around the world. So we really thank you for your time and uh, we'll have to, we'll have to talk further. I'm sure there are some, some, um, you know, mutual interests. Maybe we can partner up on something down the line, but we will just continue to follow and, uh, and amplify your message and, and wish you all the best in your upcoming, uh, your upcoming adventures. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much and, and keep doing what you're doing. It's inspiring me. So thank you. Thanks, Kersey. And thanks to everybody for listening. We will be back with you shortly. We appreciate it. Thanks.